Hello and welcome to the second in our podcast of a rabbi and a philosopher walking to a podcast. I'm Yedis Golan, Rabbi Sheffield, and I'm sitting across from Solworth, who is my local neighborhood philosopher. How are you, Sol? I'm very good, Jonathan. Thank you. How are you? I'm all right, Baruch Hashem. On the last podcast, we sort of ended up in the subject of God. Not a small topic by any means. And I thought we'd pick up on that and start the ball rolling and discussing who or what is God? Where is God? What color is he? I say he, maybe it's a she, it's an it. Is there anything we can say about God? How do we know that there is a God? When people say to me, I don't know if I believe in God or I do believe in God or I don't believe in God, I always find that phrase very strange. Belief in God? God is a subject of existence or non-existence. The belief would be a strange word to use about that. It's a bit like me saying to you, do you believe you have a car, and you said, well, I used to believe in my car, and then one day it crashed, and so I stopped believing in the car. That would sound a bit ridiculous. Now, as we're talking about something that exists, if it exists, whether I believe in it or not, does not change its existence. And if it doesn't exist, then... You can believe from today to tomorrow, you're not going to wish it into existence. So when I hear people talk about, you know, I used to, I grew up believing and then something happened and I stopped believing. And whilst I would commiserate with the person and the whatever tragic event they went through that stopped them having the faith in God, I do think that that is not the right terminology. Faith or belief is are the wrong words to use. If God exists, he exists. Another popular question I often get is, if God is there, how come there's so many bad things that happen in the world? Well, so before before we before we go into that, let me just let me just ask you a question. Um, if those are the wrong words, would you believe the right words? Would you would you say I know God exists? Yes, you either know He exists, you understand. Do I understand that there is a God in existence, or I don't have that understanding? So I don't know why you would say that. But do you believe that you have proof? For his existence, or you believe that it's it's something that is in, inherently improvable, and, and and if it is, that's completely fine. Uh, but is is God something that is inherently improvable? I believe I, it's true to say that any sane thinking individual must come to the conclusion that there is something out there. I stop short of calling it by any particular name, but there is some existence out there that does not fit the criteria that I use to describe anything in this universe. Everything in the world that I see is all a product of a previous something or other. There is nothing in this world that I can point to that has appeared from nowhere, that is able to create itself, which is a bit of a terminological incongruity, because if it could create itself, then it must exist beforehand in order to create itself. So it's really self-defeating in that, that sort of wording. But nothing appears out of nowhere. Everything appears in the previous form of existence. And therefore, 
we must have something out there that does not have these limitations, does not have this form of having to be there because something else made it be there. Then we've come to the force, if you like, the the something out there, the existence. I note that you know one of the foremost writers in all of this is Maimonides, and he starts off at the very beginning of his book by saying, "You say that you say this for Omar the Hochmus. He says the foundation of all foundations and the pillar of all wisdom, Leda, is to know. He does not use the word belief. Is to know, Shiyeshon Motsuish." that there is there a previous existence, something which you just called Motsu. Motsu from the Hebrew means if, if it is to be found. He does not describe what it is. He puts no identifying conditions to the to God itself. And to be honest, after everything we know about God, that remains the case. He is there, and I use the word he, simply out of convenience, but he isn't a he or a she or a nit. His existence must be different to any other form of existence because something that exists I can describe in some form, whereas this is beyond description. But there must be something there because where did everything come from? In other words, there's, there's two points to this. If all you had was a rock, nothing of any great artistic value, you'd have the same piece of evidence that there must be somebody that caused that rock to be there. When you add to that the concepts, which I'm sure you're familiar with, of intelligent design, which is just another way of saying God, but one that's more palatable to certain groups and ideologies, then you start saying, well, come on, there's got to be something there because there's just too much detail, too much pattern, too much um, system in what I'm seeing for it to all be completely at random, which would be the obvious alternative if you do not say God. And that is, if you like, an add-on to the previous point that anything proves the existence of God, but when it is with such design, it proves it much, much greater. So it's not a proof in the way that I can see or hear or feel it. I'm not using any of my senses. I'm using my mind. And my mind is telling me there must be something there. In the same way as if, to pick a sort of a gory example in, in human terms, if a police are called to a, a country lane and they find somebody murdered there, they don't know who or what the murderer is, but the presence of the body dictates somebody must have murdered it. And I'm not going to go and say, well, we just don't know. You know, maybe in the fullness of time we'll find out. No. The police will say, no, that doesn't work like that. There must be a murder. Well, we haven't found anyone. We can't see or hear or feel anyone. They'll say, well, that doesn't matter. We will keep searching until we find it because there must be someone there. Now, that is in human terms. I'm just extrapolating that to be to, to the more the bigger picture. I've spoken for quite a bit, so what, what do you want us to respond? So interestingly, I think I can, I can probably see three almost separate arguments made uh, in, in that statement. So... I'd, I'd like for us to separate them, recognize them individually, and then we can discuss them. So uh, for my fellow philosophers out there, the first argument that you put forward is known as the cosmological argument. And the cosmological argument is the creation argument in that 
the first thing you said came from the chain of cause and effect in that everything we find in the world has a cause therefore there must have been a first cause that must be god that's the cosmological argument we'll come back to it in a minute you also briefly touched on the teleological argument uh which is the argument from design in which you pointed out that the world is simply too designed to have uh come by chance and that it must have had an intelligent designer and then the third argument which you made which was maybe slightly more entwined but which I, I want to try and extract out was the rational argument for God, which was that you you feel you can you can make a a rational proof, as you as you put it, uh, for God not using any of your senses. Now, it, that's not strictly true uh, in the case of the cosmological and teleological argument. There are both rational and empirical arguments for God's existence. For anyone interested in the fancy Greek terms, rational is a priori and empirical is a posteriori. And what those terms mean is they differentiate the ways in which we make arguments. The teleological argument, for example, is an empirical argument by essence because it relies first on your senses. For you to look at the universe and say it looks ordered, you must first be able to see. And in that sense, it is an empirical argument. In the same way, the cosmological argument is an empirical argument. And while it may, while it may seem like a rational proof at first, it comes from the understanding that everything in our world has a cause and an effect. And we only know of that because of our empirical existence. Now, that's not to say that you don't then apply rationality to those arguments, but in their pure form, they're certainly not rational arguments. Uh, a purely a priori proof for God's existence uh, does exist, and we can go into those later, uh, such as Anselm's ontological argument for God. But for now, let's talk about... And you also, you also did uh, touch on, very briefly, uh, the problem of evil, and we then didn't actually talk about it. So I would say... The three things that we need to discuss currently will be the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, and the problem of evil. So why don't we start at the very beginning? It's a very good place to start. Mm. The start. How do you think the universe came to be, Jonathan? I believe 100% the description of the Bible, as it says in the book of Genesis, I feel that God has said, look, there's a lot of guys out there that are going to wonder about this. So let me put them out of their misery and tell them. So there was at some point that God creates. And the term creation here is unlike anything that we are used to. You might use the word creation if a silversmith was to take a lump of silver and turn it into a goblet, a kiddish cup, cup which we use to sanctify the Sabbath with by filling it with wine. And you would say, well, he has created a cup. The truth is he hasn't created in the strict sense of creation. He's merely changed the form of a piece of silver. But imagine you would have, no, you wouldn't have any silver, and you'd have to create the silver as well as the shape. 
then you would have true creation. So that is what God has from absolute no nothing. Ex no, nihilo. Ex nihilo, yeah. There's no physical material around. He creates this physical material. The Kabbalists will tell you in great and very descriptive terms, but it's all Kabbalistic, is that, that God effectively creates an open space, an existence of something where his presence is concealed. And into that, he creates something very, very restricted, which is effectively taking his existence and turning it into something very physical. My series of infinite steps, each step of which is infinite in itself, and then an infinite number of them, until we eventually have a very, at a very huge logical distance from God, the existence of something. And then in each of the days of creation, he developed different parts of that creation. So we start, so we start off with just a lump. A lump, as Genesis describes it, a globe over which there is a surface of water, no land is visible. And then bit by bit, he starts to create different things on each of the six days of creation, which is why evolution would be, and I dare I mention that word, evolution would not fit well with that description because it says clearly that each of those days was a different form of creation and there was not one from the other. So the first day he creates light, the second day... He separates the atmosphere and creates uh, heavens, if you like, sky and earth. And they're separated. They've got the upper waters and the lower waters, meaning there is a, there is effectively a weather system. Then he brings forth vegetation. Then he creates the various other things that we see: the sky, the moon, the stars, the sun. And then he brings forth animals. And on the sixth day, finally, he creates man. And that is the last of his creations, but the most important. And that is described as, or that is the day we now have in our Jewish calendar as Rosh Hashanah, the day of the Jewish New Year. Interestingly, referred to in the liturgy as the day of God, the beginning of God's actions. And you will argue, hang on, you yourself say you, your actions started a few days earlier. So Rosh Hashanah, the sixth day of creation, is not the beginning, it's the sixth day. And the answer to that is, well, since the entire universe is created for us to fulfill a godly purpose in it while we are here, that, as far as I'm concerned, the beginning, that's when it, the stuff really gets going. So do you believe that the events of the seven-day creation happened literally as they are written? Absolutely. So I don't believe God will be fooling you. If he's trying to give you the scribe creation, why would he write it in any other way than the literal translation is that it says it was evening and it was morning and one day. I take that as evening and morning and one day. So six days and we've had a seven-day week as far back as civilization ever goes and we can record. And the various things that come out then each day are all individuals, not the product of something there beforehand. Okay, let's let's talk about a couple of claims made there. Uh, we've had a seven-day week as far as we can go back. Absolutely not true at all. We've had a seven-day week as far as Judaism decided we had a seven-day week. That is not an empirical... The whole world has seven days. Where'd they get it from? The, the globalization that accompanied the spread of religion took with it 
a great deal of things around the world which include normative practices that have nothing to do with the religion. I, I, I don't know for certain that the seven-day week definitely comes from the scripture rather than the other way around. However, what I would say is I think that at, at least within anywhere that had the impact of the Abrahamic faiths, so certainly not rural islands, and many of them don't conform to the same version of a seven-day week that we do, but what you do see around the world is people using the same sorts of things. So if it's on a seven-day week, maybe it's a 14-day fortnight. Well, why is that? Well, it's because all of those things stem to some extent from the lunar cycle and the solar cycle and the fact that loosely a, a lunar cycle is around 29 days. To split that into a sort of workable chunk, you take 29, well, 29 is not going to really divide that well. Let's make it four sevens. That became the week and the weeks developed through at least four for the Gregorian calendar developed through Roman culture, for the Jewish calendar developed through Jewish culture and beliefs. But it certainly, it certainly isn't an absolute fact to say that the seven-day week, as we know it, has been, a, has been around for all of civilization. Let's talk about science. Do you believe that, as a framework of knowledge, science has provably changed the world and given us incredible things first absolutely also you cannot ignore science and neither does the torah it, it puts a lot of emphasis and sometimes gives it a supreme decision-making powers for instance in the realm of medicine um, there may be certain laws that will be affected by your health and you want to know if according to the bible i should be doing this but the doctor says i should be doing that whom do I follow? And the answer would be, you follow the doctor. He's probably Jewish anyway. <laughs> yes, maybe my son, the doctor, or my daughter, the doctor, because my daughter is actually a doctor. You would um, have a, a bizarre situation where you, where you, you could have. This is a theoretical. This isn't the, the truth. But imagine you're on the Sabbath day when you're forbidden for doing a number of actions which constitute work in the vision of the Torah. Torah, I use the word Torah, I mean the, the Bible with all its commentaries and all the Jewish law that emanates from that. So that's what I mean when I use that word. I just mean scripture per se. Um, and, and it's the Sabbath day and somebody's had a terrible accident and needs to go to a hospital. And you say, well, hang on, this is the, today is the Sabbath day, you're not supposed to ride in a vehicle and lift up the phone or use the phone. So we can't do that. And the argument would be, if God wanted this person to be healed, how comes he made him get hurt on a Sabbath day, knowing full well you're not supposed to do these things? Well, that would be an argument that somebody might put forward, but it would be not an argument in the accordance of the Torah, because the Torah says quite specifically, the laws of Sabbath apply in all circumstances except when there's a danger to life. And so therefore you get in the car, you take that person to hospital, you look after them. You say, well, how comes that can override? Because God says that when it comes to healing, you've been given you've been given permission to please go ahead and heal. You look for whatever you can. Science is there to learn and to explore and to continuously 
seek out better and better ways of living and ways of medication and just general exploring spaces also i mean i knew of a of a of a, a scientist who was who asked once asked my mentor and teacher the Lababa and said uh, is there life out in outer space is there somewhere else and they had a long discussion and the Rebbe put forward an argument that says there could not logically be another planet where there are free-thinking human beings so he says so then um, um, is there no point in looking and he says no your job is to look and just put forward an argument but you as a scientist you must constantly look however when I, having said all of that science is ultimately dealing with the materials that we have in front of us which I would argue to you are all part of God's creation when I said God's creation earlier I don't just mean a one-off I mean a constant flow of energy that keeps creation in situ so that it's a basic tenet of more advanced Kabbalistic thinking as opposed to the way things were a thousand years ago. People didn't always understand these things. Even the rabbis didn't always get to the bottom of this. God isn't just the one of creative then goes off, he goes off home and, and smokes a cigar. God created and continues to create because that lump of silver I referred to, you, uh, I referred to earlier does not have any independent existence. As far as the silversmith is concerned, it exists independently. So he can change the shape and he can go off and have a cigar. But as far as God is concerned, that silver does not exist without him. So therefore he has got to keep this thing in existence, much like the light that we can see in the room now coming from these light bulbs is not just switched on and then... I thought only fool would think you switch that on, so that's there now, I don't have to do anything. So, well, no. There's a, a, a flow of energy going through that circuit that keeps that light on. You turn the light off, and then there ceases to be any light. So, am I making sense? You, you, you are, you are making sense. I want to, I want to drill down into this, this discussion of science a little bit more. Um, we've agreed uh, that at a general level, science has has value. Uh, you also put forward the case that. Anything we do within science, it works within a framework of what you believe God has given us. Let's talk about some of the scientific inaccuracies in the creation story. And I'd love to know what you think about that. Many of the things in Genesis don't work on a fundamental level, even beyond, or are incorrect, even beyond the fact that, that science points towards a different way the world works. We're going we're gonna to talk about evolution in a bit, but... Even if we say that it is possible that the universe all could have come about in the span of seven days, let's talk about some of the specifics then. On day one, God creates light. The sun, which we now know to be the source of our light, wasn't created until day four. On day three, the plants were created. The idea that the plants were created before the sun doesn't really work because the existence of plants is entirely dependent on the sun. They get their nutrients from the sun and without the existence of the sun, plants couldn't exist. So if God creates the, the, the universe and how everything works and God has decided that plants can't exist without the sun, why does God choose to create plants before the sun? 
there are also there are also several other just inaccuracies so the earth isn't described specifically as a as a as a globe um it's it's described using a word that could be interpreted to mean sphere but probably meant more like disc at the time and the earth is suggested to uh be held up by pillars which we now know not to be true the atmosphere isn't thought of as a gas it's described as like a solid dome and there are lots of other examples maybe not just in the seven day creation but in the rest of genesis of more and more little things like this that just don't quite fit with our understanding of science and of the how, of how the world works these days now of course all of that sort of scholarly work is being done within a framework of would it be possible that the world was created in seven days in that creation it's you know play theology the real question is why do we have so much overwhelming evidence that points away from that conclusion if god created the universe and everything in it is there for a reason nothing happens by accident our ability to derive science from the natural world is not something that we are doing against god's word right as you said god especially within the jewish culture learning and knowledge is is, is revered now every single piece of modern scientific data will tell you that the universe is a lot lot older than 6000 years and was absolutely not created in 7 days there are some parts of that that are speculative and there are some parts that are almost undeniable and we will do the discussion of how did the universe start if not for god but before we do that i would like to hear your thoughts on that account of the seven day creation mythology okay so let me tidy up a few things um which i i'll preface by saying that i am a rabbi so i know my scripture and if i point to some mistakes that when I say they are mistakes in your scriptures, no more aware of personal criticism of yourself. I don't expect you to know that. Um, all of, tidy all up of the, some of the bits and pieces about the seven days of creation. All of the things that I reference have been researched and are backed up by at least some scholarly interpretation. Nothing that I say at any point in this podcast will be just entirely something that I've decided. But do, fine, do continue. Absolutely fine. Um, uh, and I would try and go through, as far as my memory serves me, to go through one by one. Firstly, the light that was created on the first day is immediately described as a different kind of light, more of a spiritual light, as opposed to the physical light that's created on day four. Secondly, you brought up the issue of plants, plantation being reliant on the sun. Firstly, if even based on what you said, there's nothing to stop God creating plants on day three, and that they go without any insist- sustenance till day four it's only a day they're not going to die overnight they would if the sun ceased to exist right now the world would become so cold and then within the next few hours we would all die because it would be well we'd also be we'd also be flung off into space because we because we would be released yeah from we wouldn't all die there's been several um uh, examinations of this from a scientific point of view so what would happen if the sun switched off um, immediately, and it was, it's likely we would last quite a bit longer than that. There's a lot of internal heat that we've built up in the universe. So it's a hypothetical question, 
but one that science loves, scientists love to play with, what would happen. We could possibly last, and plantation definitely would. Uh, even humans could likely last. We'd be able to generate our own heat for maybe a, a day or two. Humans or three. could likely last longer than plants, I, I suspect. But plants, even plants, well, I mean, you think if you take a plant and put it in a, in a, in a black room with no light exposure to it's not going to wither and die immediately. The, dif the difference is, though, it's not the light I'm talking about so much as the heat. Without, without the sun as our source of heat, we are in space, which is a freezing cold vacuum, then, and we wouldn't have a source of heat. Yeah, so we'd, 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 It would take time for the Earth to cool down. We have a very hot core. That's one. But they, I'm, I'm, I'm on shaky ground here because I'm not a scientist to be able to tell you how long it would take. But I'm pretty certain that it probably would not be in, in the course of a day. But secondly... If you bring into the picture that we are here talking not about a scientific act, we're talking about here something which is about as miraculous as it gets. Creation. If God creates plants and vegetation on day three, he's perfectly capable of creating in such a way that they will last and be picked up on day four. I, 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 grant, I grant you that. I grant you that. Uh, what about other claims that aren't so much to do with the sort of pragmatic nature of whether it could have happened, but are more to do with claims that we can empirically prove to be false now. So on day four, he creates the sun and the moon and the stars. And the sun is described as being different from the stars and the moon, which we now know not to be true. We know that the sun is just another star. They well, are the same. It doesn't say anywhere that it's different. It just describes the creation of the sun. And then describes the creation of the moon. They were originally both very powerful, and then God made the moon non-powerful. It does describe the moon as being its own source of light, also. Yes. And then, it's... and then afterwards, the moon was reduced. But it's made it's made less bright. It's not. It doesn't say that the moon doesn't emit its own light. It does. It says that the moon was to take the Medrashic explanation. The sun and the moon. These metaphorical conversations are gone. Some of the moon argued, how can we both? The moon came to the Almighty and said, we're both as bright as each other, there's no point. So God says, you're right. And so he reduced the moon to having none of its own light, only the light that it was reflected off the sun. So it has light, but it's not its own light. It does shine, but it's not shining from independent light. I mean, for, for one thing, we now, know... Now, that's what, if you look at the book, that's what it says. Even if you take all the Midrashic, and Talmudic explanations of everything that's written there, it's still pretty much... It doesn't say that the sun I, I is mean, any different. It does, it does suggest, though, that the moon at one point could shine, which is... Yes, it did. Which is, which is impossible unless the moon was at one point a ball of burning gas like the sun, and it was then made into solid rock. Yeah, then it was made, yeah, which is exactly what the, the Torah describes as happening. It was originally created as a, as a luminary, and then God reduced its light. And in fact, Every month when the moon renews itself, the Jewish, this is a, a prayer that you will find in, in, in your, your, your admittedly orthodox Jewish prayer, but which has been going on for thousands of years, there's a prayer we call Kiddush Levana, which means you sanctify the new moon. There's a prayer where people actually go out into the garden, into the street, and will say a prayer thanking God for the renewal of the cycle of the moon. And in that prayer it says, that we wait for the day when Messiah will come and then the moon will get back its former glory. 
So what that will mean, I do not know because it's messianic and I have no idea what's going to happen when, when Mashiach comes, when the Messiah comes. But that is the, the principle based on the, the as it was, at the, and the prayer says it will return to the way it was in the six days of creation. So that's the story. Originally, God made them both as luminaries, then reduced the light of the moon to nothing, or effectively only what it will reflect of the sun. And that's the way it stayed ever since. And the stars are mentioned in passing that since the moon took a hit, so God multiplied its uh, its accompaniments so that there's lots of stars to accompany the moon, meaning that the only time we see the stars is usually when the moon is out or when the sun is not out. We will we will move on from 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 this shortly, but I, I would like to just also. But can I go back to your previous points of the science? That's I was I was gonna. That's what I was gonna say. It was I would love to know the thoughts on the. Well, you said quite confidently the flat. And I don't blame you at all. Earth held up by pillars and dome and dome. Yeah, none of that is in is is in the account of creation. The references to the three pillars on which the world was created do not mean that they're physical pillars. It means three principles of attitude of God that he put into the world. He said, these are the things that I consider the most important uh, pillars of, of value, of, of things to strive towards. And we have our own three pillars of what makes us as a human race tick. And they are symbolic in a triangle. And you, if you have the godly three principles as one triangle, human three principles as a second triangle, you superimpose one on top of the other, guess what you have? You have the Star of David. That's some of the meaning behind it. So can I ask a clarification there? When it says about the existence of the three pillars, does it specifically say that those pillars are metaphorical and represent... Yeah, yeah. That, that. It, firstly, in the account of creation in the book of Genesis, there's no mention of any pillars at all. Secondly, there's no mention of it being a disc or a ball or a sphere either. It just refers to the earth and refers to the sun and refers to the moon. If any of the celestial existences, that's all it refers to. It doesn't describe what shape they are. You have to look for further field to find that. And interestingly, in very early writings, there is reference to the Kadur Ha'orets, the ball of the earth, a lot longer before human beings got around to understanding that the earth was not flat. So if anyone came to the idea that the earth is a sphere, it's us. That's so, a bold claim to make because you might find some Chinese philosopher out there who got the idea a long time before us. I don't know. But generally, as far as best of my knowledge, you will find that all, you know, a long time, we talk about in Tawulita, 2,000 years ago, even more than that, 3,000 years ago, when, when the official, the, the, the cycle of the moon was, was worked out, which is, by the way, I, I hear what you say about the seven days, but I think if you, in the cool right of day, it would be a very odd thing to have a seven-day week. And even trying to fit it into seven is a very difficult number to deal with. Unless it's going into roughly 28, which is well, the lunar is it, cycle. The, the, a, a lunar cycle is 29 and a half days. So in it other is. words, two months covers 59 days. And even that's not 100%. Certain. It is, but to split it into four, you either have to go down one or up one. And if you go up one, you get 30, which doesn't divide by four. So you go down to 28 because it divides by four. Right, but who says you need to have a four on the deal? You could have had two 15s, or you could just have a 30-day... You could, and there, and there are examples. For, for example, 
a lot of Iberian cultures, the word for fortnight refers to 15 days. Well, that's in French. It's in, it's in, it's in Spanish and Portuguese, and I didn't know it was also in French. But Casual means uh, it's a fortnight. Yeah, and so... And they... when I was in school, I asked my teacher, why do, you, why do you call a fortnight 15 days? And he said to me, because it always takes you a day, half a day to get there and half a day to get back. <laughs> <laughs> so, all of the objections that I've made previously were fairly minor objections. I'm not entirely convinced by your responses to them, but you're not convinced by my criticisms. So, let's do, let's do the big one. Day six, God creates human. What are your thoughts on evolution? Evolution, and I pick up on something you said earlier, which I didn't respond to yet, which is the evidence. Evolution does not have, despite the, the, the good press res, releases, does not have the evidence that makes it beyond reasonable doubt. I cut out from the Times newspaper a while back a, little, a letter that somebody had written that said he asked a some website where there are a thousand there are so, uh, something around the figure of a thousand of the best scientists in the world and he said his question was phrased as follows could you please give me give me one piece of evidence which proves beyond all reasonable doubt that the world came about by any means other than creation and he said he didn't get a single response. In other okay. words, so, well, evolution well, okay. remains a theory. It is still subject to a lot of evidence. And and I will explain exactly what I mean by that. Because we have yet to have clear-cut, observable data of any species. I mean, any species that has evolved from the classic Aristotle way of dividing things up to inanimate objects, growing world, animal kingdom, and human beings. We have yet to find, observe any of that. Our observable data that we have is really only the last few hundred We're years. We're yet to observe what, sorry? Any of these things mutating from a plant into an animal, from an animal into a human being. Okay, we so... We don't have that evidence. So all we have... The bet at best is we have archaeological evidence, which is not the same thing. So plants, so plants, plants don't evolve into animals. That's not that's not a claim that anyone makes, other than in the sense of millions and millions of years. Uh, in the sense of millions and millions of years, you're saying that effectively. Uh, I'm I'm saying that life stems from a similar place. Animals did not evolve from plants. Animal animals evolved from microbes and microbes also evolved into plants. One common misconception with evolution is that the phrase humans evolved from apes uh, often gets misrepresented. Uh, one I know what you're saying. You say it's previous life forms, not necessarily apes. Well, so, so, one, so, so one problem one problem. Well, we haven't is, got any evidence of that. Okay, so let me, let me talk you through the absolute wealth of evidence we have on it. No one is claiming for a second that humans evolved from modern monkeys. When people say, well, how come monkeys still exist? It's because we evolved separately from one common ancestor. There absolutely is evidence. Evidence beyond reasonable doubt that proves that it wasn't God is not possible. By the definition of the question you're asking, it's begging the question and it's a fallacious line of argument because it sets the other one up for failure. The reason for that is that it is a well-established 
maxim of philosophy that the burden of proof is on the one who makes the claim, not the one who rejects the claim. That's very simple to demonstrate. Right now, if I said to you, there are a thousand invisible fairies between us right now, and you said, no, there aren't. And I said, can you prove that there aren't? Let's say you start to try and prove it. So you say, okay, well, I can wave my hand through the hair, through the air, and I don't, I don't feel anything. Is that proof? And I go, uh, well, the fairies, they're also, they also don't have physical forms. They're like, they're called sort of spiritual fairies. And you go, well, I can't see them. Oh, well, they're, they're, they're invisible. Whatever you do, I can change my terms and conditions, or I can have them written like that from the very start to make it innately impossible for you to disprove them. This is, this is summarized in very, very well in uh, an experiment called the, uh, the Teapot by Bertrand Russell, where he suggests that there is, he asserts that there is a teapot floating somewhere between here and the moon, and points out that if we were all to act as if there were, without the evidence, it would be foolish. But to act as if there isn't, because we don't have the evidence, makes considerably more sense. And so, until the evidence is provided, the burden of proof is not on the disbeliever to disprove it. That's, that, and that's not something that is, that is, like, debatable. It's a well-established fact that the burden of proof is on the believer. Now, you are, by that definition, never going to be able to prove that God didn't create the universe. Because even if I go all the way back to, let's say I, I have a proof for the Big Bang, which, by the way, there is a proof for the Big Bang. We don't know what caused the Big Bang, but the Nobel Prize a few years ago was won by some scientists who could prove that the Big Bang happened and can date it based on background radiation that we find in TVs and in, in the I'm world. I'm aware of that. So... Even if I have that proof, and we agree that that proof is true, you could turn around and say, well, the Big Bang did happen, but that was creation, and it was, and it was a, people move away from seven-day creation into seven-stage seven creation and all of these sorts of things. Let's talk evolution. There absolutely is evidence, and to say there isn't evidence, it's, Heretical. Almost, it's almost dishonest to me, to, me to, to, to claim that there isn't evidence, because it feels like it's, it's asserting the the aim that you want to reach without without giving it a, a a fair try so for example we can we we now know at, at the time that well, darwin if i make that accusation you, you give me the credit of at least having something behind what i'm saying behind the idea that there is no evidence yeah, there behind is no the idea that the evidence no reasonable does, behind the idea that what you're seeing does not constitute evidence okay what so you're telling so, me from uh, science, I can, so i can i can show you i can show you on a screen the exact similarities between human and ape DNA and between the skeletal structure. I can show you where on the human the tailbone used to be. I can dissect the brain and show you the similarities between human and monkey brains. And I can show you exactly how it, we would have evolved from a common ancestor. Now, a lot of those things could be purely sort of correlatory. Do you believe that humans are animals. I would have to ask you what you mean by animals. Do we, do we fit into the animal kingdom no, in the same way that Adam? Not at all. We are a completely different level, grouping, category, and so, so it suits you. What makes us saliently different? Our ability to communicate, speak, talk, 
and within that, our ability to think. Okay, so a baby, are they closer to animals or humans? They're, they're closer to humans. Why? Because a baby does think and is absorbing information in a way that an animal is. If a baby can't communicate to you that it's thinking, then you don't know that it's thinking. Equally, many animals think. They don't have language, but they do communicate. Dolphins use incredibly complex series of clicks and whistles. We know for a fact that monkeys and apes can be taught basic sign language. They definitely do think. They clearly have, they have, they have some level of consciousness. They have some level of consciousness and they have some form of mental activity. I will not call it thought. I would call it instinctive processes that they work through. And when the dolphins click to each other, that is all part of that. They're not capable of independent, rational thought like a human being. They're, they're like a million miles away. So independent, rational thought is the, is the salient difference? Now, when you ask about a child, you, have, you put a good point there. A child... Or someone in a coma or someone a, with severe mental disability. Yeah, in other words, those faculties are there, but they're just not developed. So I would say they're still... The potential is still there. Whereas in an animal, the potential is never there. So although a child isn't thinking of in my way at the moment, and even a child of five years old isn't thinking like an adult, and part of that is, is education, nevertheless, they have the potential forethought. So I will still grant them the status of humans because given time, they will become and do everything that I say human beings should do. So if someone is born, if someone is born with an extreme birth defect to the point where they are in a vegetative state from birth and we know that they will never develop the ability to talk and they will never develop any sort of recognizable rationality. Well, I try to use the word communicate rather than talk, but I do much But animals communicate. No, I don't mean that. I don't mean communicate in the sense that the sounds go from one to the other. I mean be able to communicate using, facult using rational thought. So, so what animals don't do, and the fact that makes sounds doesn't qualify. So why doesn't sign language qualify? Sign language does qualify, but an animal does not speak sign language. I agree they don't speak sign language, but they are able to communicate thoughts. They sign. don't communicate thoughts. They communicate only as much. They simply have patterns of instinctive behavior pre-programmed by which they exist. They have very, very shallow levels of understanding. They simply understand this is food or not food. This will get me my desired result, or this won't get me desired result. And they have the instinctive desire to procreate, which they follow patterns. To. I wouldn't say that's strictly true either. There are there are examples of many animals which behave in ways outside of our understanding of any anything that they should be doing due to their instinctual behaviour. Many animals, for example, will pleasure themselves. There isn't an explanation to why they do that other than a drive for pleasure. Now, the drive to reproduce in animals is not driven by pleasure. It's driven by instinct and biological drive. But they clearly are aware that it causes pleasure because many animals will, will, will do it themselves with, without, any, without any gain. And there are lots of examples of animals that are, I think, much, much smarter than you're giving them credit for. I mean, crows, for example, 
are often said to have the intelligence of an eight-year-old child. I mean, crows can hold grudges. If you if people who treat them well, they recognize faces. And people who treat them well or treat them badly, even years down the line, there will be visible signs that the crows remember and react accordingly. That is more than just instinct and instinctual responses. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. I think it is simply instinct teaching you this person causes me harm. It's a bit like a computer. It's an on-off switch. It's a black and white. It's a yes and no. It's positive and negative. This causes me pain. Keep away from it. The fact that they bear that memory or elephants remember from all of these will be instinctive qualities that that particular biological formation has naturally. The ability to have independent and intelligent thought, and particularly if you bring in, I'm sure you're familiar with the algorithm, you talk about music or you talk about art, none of these are within the realms of animals or any forms of, of that realm of creation to be able to do of their own accord. You can play the music and they may respond to it, but they cannot write music, they cannot play music. They cannot say but I, I, All of those things can be said about children or people in a vegetative state. Right, but my answer to that would be that these, these children or people in a vegetative state still have the potential. So they are, as your question originally started off, are they closer to humans? Yes, they are. Sometimes you have unrealized potential that wouldn't disqualify a human being. If you were being stat, sat in a chair and never got out of it, they wouldn't know how to walk. You need to have to walk for a bit to get the hang of how that happens. You see babies doing that. They get the hang of it within a few weeks, few months, how long it takes. So all of these things remain potentially there, and you just have to realize it. So that form, they still qualify as human beings. But I do not see any potential in animals. And I think it's fairly, you know, even the greatest animal lover will have to come to that conclusion. The animals, with everything that they are, in fact, that's the whole magic of animals. Why, when you listen to a parrot talk, does it bring a smile to your face? Why does it elicit a response? You could talk, you could say the same things that the parrot say, but why does it do something for you when it's the parrot that says it? Because parrots do not talk, and this one sounds like it does. When you go to a circus and you see animals jumping through loops, that is a form of entertainment, not necessarily entertainment we would agree with in modern society, but it's one nevertheless because they are animals. They shouldn't be doing that. When people, um, like I read about this story of a, of a woman who was, got, who was swimming off the, a beach somewhere in the tropics and she was got into trouble. She got cramped and she began to drown. And this dolphin came and rescued her. The dolphin somehow sensed that she was in trouble and physically lifted her and brought as close as that dolphin could possibly go to the, the beach edge so that she was able to clamber up and, and save herself. That is beautiful. That is amazing. But why? Because it's a dolphin, not a human being. So this is a response, if you like, from the Hasidic philosophical point of view, and here I'm referring to the branch of, of thought that takes these Kabbalistic ideas and gives them some sort of logical way of understanding them. When you see something that acts beyond its given station, beyond what you think it could do, it attracts attention. It gives you some sort of thrill. Okay, so 
My I, animal shouldn't do it, and he did, and that's wonderful. Okay, I, I agree, and I'm not. I'm not for a second claiming animals are humans, or animals are closer to humans than babies are. Obviously, babies are human. Babies have the potential to be human, and are objectively human. However, the novelty of the fact that we are entertained by animals, and that a parrot speaking is entertaining because they can't actually speak, isn't within itself an argument for why animals and humans don't exist within the same system. I'm not for a second saying that humans are not the absolute top of the consciousness pyramid. If consciousness is seen to be something that can be on a sliding scale, which not everyone agrees it is, some people think it's on or off, but if we agree that, you know, consciousness can can come in varying degrees. Absolutely, humans have it to the highest extent. However, the, the lack of that consciousness in animals doesn't, doesn't prove by any means that they are within a different system to us. And rather than looking here for mental faculty, let's look back to biology and let's go from it from the most simple point of view. Humans objectively are animals. Our systems work in the same ways as animals. We have reproductive systems. We have digestive systems. We have bodies that very visibly reflect bodies of chips. We do look like apes. And there is no denying that there are visible similarities in our skeletal structure and in the rest of our body. Now, whether or not you believe that we were created as something separate from animals and that there is something saliently different about us, can you make the case that we are objectively not within the same animal kingdom? We have a genus and a phylum and a species just like every other animal does. And just as we could be broken down into categories, everything else can. So here's a question for you. Do you believe humans are mammals? I'd have to ask you what that means. When you what, what do you mean when you say mammals? The definition of a mammal, uh, with the exception of the platypus, is an animal that, and I'll change the word animal because otherwise you're going to get hung up on the very first word, a creature who births and suckles live young. That's the definition. Do you agree we're mammals? Yeah, no, I wouldn't say we're mammals either because mammals is just another form of animals. So you don't agree that we burn no, and suckle live young? I said we are a separate species altogether. I believe that I would We are a separate say, species. We're absolutely a separate species. But we're in a separate category. We're not in the category of animals or fish or birds or mammals or insects or any one of those. All of those are out. All, All of, of those, those are out. They're in their own, uh, you know, if, if they're in their own club, if you like. Okay, so everything on the earth that is an animal, is there anything living that's not a plant? can be put into certain groups based on certain characteristics. Yeah, well, well we, I would describe that, that. Those four levels of description, if you like, in groups of two, would be inanimate objects, or actually I would not call them, the true definition of the word inanimate is not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew calls them David, which means still, not the same as inanimate. So I'd actually put it to you, maybe this is something for podcasts in the future, that there is a soul to a rock. Well, 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 
we'll, we'll, well, come, we'll come to a later date. Specifically, my perspective on that comes from what's called a microphysic panpsychist view, but we'll explain that at a later, uh, yeah, a later you, date. You've gone straight out of my head with that very, very beautiful word there, which I don't know what that means. Um, but I would say you have the inanimate objects, which are rocks and plants of vegetation. When I say inanimate, it means that they tend to stay in one place and the little bit of soulless in them is hardly recognizable. And then you have the living section, which would be owls, birds, fish, and anything that's that, that has a recognizable movement and a life, appears to, the, the life side of it is much more visible. And then humans is in its own category. And when we discussed earlier about the, the, the potential that the human beings are, because they communicate, we, we didn't, I didn't really get to the circle point of what's the point of all of that. In that your human qualities allow you to do something very profound, and that is to make moral decisions, to choose. You can make independent choices about whether you want to do something, you don't want to do something. You can override your instinctive desires and go completely against them, something that animals do not appear to have in abundance. They have here and there you can see one or two sides of that. But in principle There are there are definitely some examples of some that but on the whole altruism within the animal world. Yeah, they sometimes still like do that. that. But usually it will come back to something which is of their benefit. Whereas true altruism was only is a human thing. I think I think morality is a human construct entirely. Yeah. It, so so why So your why ability would... to choose between good and bad that is what gives you the edge over the animal. You can make a choice. That's what, that's what makes me a moral creature. Does that make me a human? That makes you human. That's, what makes, that's the whole point of what makes you human. So you don't think that we can, we can say that there is any biological set of structures yeah, that make us human? Biological makeup it bears lots of resemblances with all of the various parts of it. I would say you've got all of the other three categories within your human body, but it's your spirit what we would call on a good day a soul, it that makes you very, very different. You have a certain soul to you, which I don't want to get into the, the religious side of that, but there's a certain something of life to you which is very different the other life forms that you have. In the, it bears a lot of resemblance with the animal kingdom, but it's definitely quite in a category of itself. And the major being part being its ability to communicate. And communication is communication with yourself as well, to tell yourself, this is what I want to do, but this is wrong. And you would never, no logical human being anywhere in the world would punish a lion for killing a gazelle. But you would take a human being to task for murdering one of his fellow human being inhabitants of the planet. And you would see whether this was justified or it wasn't justified, whether it was murder or was it manslaughter or was it self-defense. And you could have all these discussions but you would have to bear responsibility for your actions. Whereas the animal kingdom, we, when a push comes to shove, we say they are animals. They do what they do without making a moral decision. The, 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 problem, the problem here is, is that it, it's, it's not, it doesn't make much sense to say humans are moral, animals are not moral. That sets us apart from them. Because in my view, Morality is something that is, of course, only human because we invented it and 
the, the proof we have of that is the fact that morality on a, on a historical base is not something that is objective. Morality changes throughout cultures to the degree where there were, there's, there's, a, there's a time that's referred to as the pre-taboo era in which tribal civilizations would act in ways that you and I would think to be incredibly immoral, such as a power structure dynamic where there is one there is one male head of head of the tribe who sleeps with all of the women, including the daughters. Well, why do we think that's wrong? We could go into a whole other discussion of, of, of if it is wrong and why it is wrong. And for anyone wondering, don't you worry, we're definitely going to do morality very soon. But if we accept that there is even a small possibility that the reason that morality only happens within human culture is because it is necessarily something to do with human culture, then the problem is that completely defeats the idea that that's a salient different from animals because there are lots of things that animals do that humans don't do. And it would be theoretically possible to say, well, animals are saliently different from all humans because, because we don't do that. Or find one animal who does a certain behavior in the way that no other animals do. Well, let's talk about things that we would call immoral. There is lots of immoral acts within the animal kingdom. And there are certain creatures that do not act as immorally as others. If we're using mor morality to be a very loose description of like roughly what our human culture would deem immoral. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that to go on with this discussion, we're going to have to agree whether morality really exists or whether it doesn't, because we're obviously not. But I just want you to, to think about that potential idea as, well, what if the explanation for why humans are the only ones who do morality? It, it's, it's not because we have some innate ability to do it that animals don't, which makes us salingly different. It's that as the highest form of evolutionary life and as the highest form of consciousness, we have created a set of structures which, if we really want to delve into it, probably exist for purely evolutionary reasons. Because at the very end of the day, it's still selfish. Morality is still selfish. Most things that we deem to be moral can be put down to, in some part, an evolutionary drive to survive. So on the subject of morality, to me that is one part of it, not the sole bit of it. It's several bits that come together to make what I say is human beings. I believe is the, the tallest view of human beings, I mean, quite distinct from animals. And if you look at the book of Genesis, the actual word they use there is that you will be like God to know the difference between right and wrong, between bad and good, between that which is correct and that which is incorrect, whatever, however you translate that Hebrew. So that is what makes you human, the ability to choose between good and bad. Now, you said before that human beings invented morality. Fine, that human beings being able to invent morality in itself shows their superiority, and animals have not been able to do that. And well, if you look at some, not... some animal forms which are a lot earlier, if according to evolution, that they started out their life a lot earlier than humans then they should have developed it a lot better than we have. I also just want to make it clear, I'm not debating their superiority in terms of anything. We are clearly the most superior race. We've dominated the planet and turned it into 
what it is today. I'm not debating that for a second. It's whether the morality makes them saliently different from animals in enough of a sense that we should refer to them not as animals. I 100% agree that, well, I don't know if I agree that it's morality that makes us superior, but it's one of the things, without a doubt, the our ability as humans to build the world we have today is on the back of our ability to form relationships with people because one individual human is not strong enough to do this. However, as well as being supposedly the most moral creatures, we also genocide each other on a scale that no other animal does. Animals don't kill each other on the same level that humans do. There are some examples in the animal kingdom, but the sort of atrocities that humans co commit towards each other, not because of our morality, but because of the height... Or that it proves the point. It's The morality is the code that you're supposed to live by. But the human beings have the ability to make the choice goes both ways. We can choose to be very good, very altruistic, and we can choose to be very evil. It doesn't negate your superiority at the top of the chain in being a, tip, a different class altogether. Now, when you say morality, whose morality? There's going to be a lot of different arguments of morality. You know, it reminds me of that book by Simon Huntington about the clash of civilizations that written in the 90s that talked about civilizations clashing with each other because they have different versions of what morality is. So, of course, you, you, can, get, you can pick on all those sort of wars, people gone to war, believing profoundly that what they're doing is morally correct. So we do seek to be morally upright. It's just we have different opinions as to what's right and wrong. And that is why, as a Jew, I will say to you, when you do not know what is right or wrong, you have to refer to a superior opinion. The only superior opinion in my book is the good Lord. Okay, let's touch on this. This is and before we touch, can I go back to just one final point about... Definitely. Do, what, do one more point, the and then we'll come back to morality. Yeah, about the scientific evidence. When you talk about scientific evidence, you have to accept that science is evolving the whole time. And what we used to believe in very rapidly becomes something we now no longer believe in. It was a time we thought of the ether, we a time we thought when time was itself fixed. And we now know that it's relative, we could prove that. And so on. So the science can never play to have the truth because we don't know how things will progress and we can suddenly make some enormous discovery that proves that everything we said till now is all wrong. So you have to hedge your bets. When well, the, you say and the important thing to remember is that science doesn't claim to have the truth. But granted. Whereas religion does. Yes. And the fact that science is constantly changing may to you come across as a criticism of it, that, well, we can never know what is true because no, science is so constantly changed. So. For me, the fact that science has changed a thousand times in the last hundred years alone is a virtue. Is the absolute reason why we should be following it. The fact that scientists as a whole are willing to say, you're right, I was wrong, your theory outdoes my theory, is incredible and something fundamentally lacking from religion. Because all that happens in religion is either in the face of new evidence or in the face of new, more logical a priori proofs, religion does one of two things. It either doubles down or it makes ad hoc changes. So the first option is orthodoxy. And when orthodoxy is presented with new opinions, it just retreats into itself and 
doesn't accept those changes and re just rejects those changes at, at face value. All right. So when you talk about orthodoxy and you talk about religion, you mix the two together. Judaism is not religion. And the reason why I would say that the statements made in in, in the Bible, in the Torah, in the book of Genesis, it, it, it is a religion. It's because it is not coming from me. It is coming from God. In other words, this is God's statement to you. So I'm not going to say that that's subject to, as best as I know, like sciences. And that's very commendable that science does that. But it does mean that I have to admit at the other day, I cannot say categorically this is how the world came about because it might change. Whereas I say to you, I don't know how the world came about. I, all I can do is I can tell you, this is what God said. I don't believe he's lying to you. So in the early 20th century, there was a group of philosophers called the logical positivists. One famous example is A.J. Eyre. And one of the things they were concerned with was how we do science and what the best framework for science was. And one of them put forward the idea that we should proportion our beliefs to the evidence and that we should be able to prove things to be true for us to believe them. That's called the verification principle. And it states that for us to be able to prove that something is true, we need to have evidence that it's true. That was around for a little while, but a few scientists pointed out some problems with it. Because the problem with saying you can't believe something until you have evidence to do so is that there will be things which you can never verify in that instance, but are true. Now, a few years later, in still in the 20th century, a new principle was devised, which was said to better the scientific rigor of belief. And it was known as the falsification principle. And what it states is that rather than having to prove that something does exist with evidence, you make a hypothesis and you then make a null hypothesis, which is a counter hypothesis. And what you do is you test for the null hypothesis over and over and over again. And if that belief isn't disproven, the scientific method claims that there is grounds for belief in that until something else is disproven. That's how science today works. We work on the falsifiability principle. Every hypothesis has a null hypothesis, and we're working to try and disprove things rather than to try and prove them. Because if you try and prove them, you can often falsely find evidence for your claim. Alongside the falsifiability principle, in its reference to the scientific method, is, is, is an important thing for this discussion. Because the falsifiability principle asserts that if something is by its nature unfalsifiable, then it cannot be viewed as, any, as holding any sort of validity. Because if you assert a claim that by its very nature could not be falsified, you assert something which breaks the fundamental laws of logic and of how we in the world act. And it, and it goes back to the thing I was talking about earlier with the burden of proof and the idea of having loads of invisible fairies around. And one of the reasons that I can say with some degree of certainty that I favour modern science over religion, even if the modern science is entirely incorrect 
and in a thousand years' time will have been completely changed. It's falsifiable. And that provides a framework of belief by which I live my life. Because the claims that religion make can never be falsified. They may be proven, but they can never be disproven. And in literally every other sphere of life, if you make an unfalsifiable claim, we just reject it. What do you think? Well, I think that too is a structure which you have come upon and like. If I was to sit there and say, well, I don't believe that a truth has to be falsifiable for it to be true, or be subject to a falsifying opinion for it to be true. I would argue that what God says is immune to that falsifying principle, maybe what human beings will put forward, because God would not be subject to that sort of vulnerability because he's supposed to be the source of all truth. So does God exist outside of logic? Yes. In the words of Maimonides in the second of that, second paragraph of that book I referred to you earlier, the first paragraph I said to you was the, the, the foundation of all foundations and the pillar of all truth is another. There's a second thing he says that He says, if he didn't exist, then nothing else could exist. But if nothing else could exist, he still exists. If you like it, this is probably something that you might be familiar with, if dare I bring in a little bit of liturgy here, from the Adonalong prayer, where I'm... I'm I'm taking it, you're probably familiar with that. It says, Adonalam Hashem Araf. I could sing it in Hebrew. I don't know the translation of it. Well, let me give it to you. Adonalam Hashem Araf, the master of the universe who reigned, Beterem Kolitsu Nivra, before anything was created. Leisa Sabachev Sarkol, at the time when everything was made according to his will, as I managed one then the term Melech was called upon him as somebody there to call him. And even after everything is finished, he will still reign supreme. What that reign means, if there's nobody there, I don't know. So that's the, so, something special. But I do want to put you back to this scientific evidence. And I want to say to you that once you introduce the idea of God creating something, he is at liberty to create something at any point in his development that he wants. So he can create something... Like you talk about the story of the Garden of Eden, which is supposed to have happened on the same day that Matt and it was created. There are trees there, and there's fruit there, and he's told to eat the fruit of this tree, fruit of that tree, and this tree, you cannot eat that fruit. And he eats it anyhow, and that's how we have the forbidden fruit. Now, a tree does not produce fruit in the matter of a few days. In any way in the world, we're not going to find that. So I must presume if there's a tree and there's fruit and everything there, and the story is true which I believe profoundly, then there must have been a tree that God created with the fruit already on it. If he's talking to Adam, he's obviously not a baby. He must have grown up, whether he had a navel or not, subject to discussion. But he must have been a human being capable of cognizant thought of being able to communicate. And according to the measure, she was equivalent to somebody who's 20 years old. Even though he's only born five minutes or all, the word born is incorrect. He was only created five minutes ago, right? So... God could get anything he wants at any point in time. So the evidence that shows that inherent in creation, things are billions of years old, 
there could have been that could have been the pattern that's created out of the word dot once you introduce God as great besides the fact and this is to me more important you you are you, you're very clever with your with with your philosophical knowledge and that and I can't really claim to know what you know on that but let me break it down to basics which for me is useful if I say to you two and two equals what and you would say four there's only one answer to that, really, in basic mathematics. But if I give you four, and I say to you, how did you get there? You could say two and two. You could say three and one. Not if the question was two plus two. No, no. but if I give you the answer four and I said to you, how did you get there? You could have more than one possibility. Right. Oh, I see what your point is. Yeah, if you, I'm allowed to introduce other numbers, you've got an infinite number because you've got uh, 222 minus 280, you end up with four. You still get to the same point. I agree. If you give me if you give me a single digit answer, there are infinite ways I could achieve that answer. Right. So I would like to 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 put that in the terms of create. When we talk with the creation here, we have here a world. I'm trying to work out how it happens. You are now venturing out into a possibility where there could be more than one answer. You can't say for certain this is how it happened. More than one answer that simultaneously exists, though? Uh, if, if, well, I'm talking about Big Bang and things like that. If you go out and say that's the Big Bang, well, that's what we know now. But there could be another answer out there. In other words, I'm dealing with a finished product. Not only that. Except the problem with two, that... There's two ways of, of, of dealing with all scientific data. There's interpolation and there's extrapolation. So if I know what happens to a certain chemical at, at, at zero degrees, I know what happens at 100 degrees, I stand a fair chance of working out what will happen at 50 degrees. Mm -hmm. If I know what happens at one degree and I know what happens at 100 degrees, and then I say, what happens at 101 degree, I'm on slightly unshaky ground there because I don't, this is outside of my frame of reference and the data that I have. And as I go further and further away from that data, the chances of me being accurate becomes less, smaller and smaller. So when I get to 110 degrees, 120 degrees, 1,000 degrees, I don't know what the reaction will be at that point. I can only surmise. Now, when we deal with that, when we deal with scientific evidence, we must have all the relevant data at the time to be able to make fairly good scientific conclusions. Whereas right now, if you're talking about something which, according to the scientific claim, it's 13 point something billion years ago. We have no idea of the conditions that were around at that time. High scientific atmospheric pressure, the chemicals that are around at the time, radiations around that time, temperature, all these things would have to be properly, clearly defined and measured by science before we can make these clear. Unless a shot in the dark. Okay, let's, let's, let's say a couple of things about that. Um, first of all, I want to... I want to pull you up on the analogy because I don't think it works. But the problem is, if you give me the answer four and the question was two plus two, but I say it was one plus three, am I incorrect? Well, you wanted me to answer two plus two because that was the one you were thinking of. But three plus one is also four. That is because four is not something which has to have one cause. It exists outside of the realm of cause and effect. 
because it isn't complete. It is a completely abstract concept. Now, whether you believe it to be innate to the universe, whether you believe it to be no, it, it was just an example. So, this so, is so, so here's so here's what I'll say. To show you how you can have a result, and you're trying to work out the cause, you can't be certain. The the, the problem the problem is is that when we do philosophy and we, and we use analogies, we have to be careful that those analogies work, and. David Hume puts forward the principle of aptness of analogy, and he sets out certain characteristics that analogies must have in order for us to be able to use them. And if those analogies are not analogous in certain ways, then we shouldn't use them. And one important thing that I just, I just want, to, want to pick up on in that specific analogy is that while I may have been incorrect that the answer was three plus one, I am correct in that three plus one is a potential answer because four can have multiple causes. The difference is the universe doesn't have multiple causes. Unless we believe in some version of quantum mechanics which posits uh, multiple different states of existence at one time, which, which we, we can go into it in more detail. And the, the problem is, is that to say that because things could have multiple explanations to them but that the further away you go from them the harder it, it the harder it gets to to extrapolate or interpolate an answer is that the sort of the, the methodological framework by which we derive that information is such that we can to an extent begin to accept these things that happened a very, very long time ago, with some degree of reasonable, reasonable certainty. And one of the reasons for that is that the way in which we know those things are through so many different methodological frameworks. The ways that we date the age of the Earth, for example, the fact that we know that the Earth is older than 6,000 years doesn't come from one source where one person said, maybe it's this. It comes from thousands of scientists doing many different methods. There's carbon dating. There's half-life radiation dating. There's background radiation that's able to be picked up by different machines. And all of those things together provide us with an account that leads us to be able to say, beyond reasonable doubt, I believe that this is what happened. However, it's also worth remembering the thing we were talking about earlier with science in that science is not asserting it as a fact. Science is saying to our current understanding, this is the best explanation we have. And when you make the assertion that God created the universe, you say that you know that and you believe it and it's very important to your identity and to how you act. Because if, if God didn't exist and the Torah wasn't true, then the practices and culture by which you live your life would at the very least lose some of their meaning. They may still be important cultural practices, but you probably wouldn't later fill in as religiously if you thought it weren't true. Now, science doesn't make those sorts of assertions because all science is saying is, I don't think your version's right. Let's try and think about what the other version might be. And we don't know. If you ask me right now, how do you think the universe started? I will answer that question with as much humility as I possibly can 
and say, how on earth would I know how the universe started? But at least you would accept that the God principle is as at least as good as the scientific one. I would not. No, that's the point. That's the point where we'd argue. Okay, so let's... Because the scientific one is based by your own admission on things which could easily be overturned at any point in the future. Okay, so the... And according to what I'm saying, that the scientific method is weak because it's trying to extrapolate based on data I have now. I've been observing over a few hundred years, and you're talking about billions of years. We've absolutely not been observing over a few hundred years. We've got, we've got 3,000 years worth of, of, of evolution of scientific data. The, the scientific data is, is, is very poor when you go back that far. We're talking about modern science. Modern science, I agree, is a few they, hundred they years. But, but that, the, the practices and the, the way in which we do science has been going for definitely okay, definitely 2500 years granted but the the conclusions that the oldest the world uh, the world is older than the biblical description of it have only been around very recently when modern science began to attack that so i say to you that that method is weak i say to you even if you would agree that this method does is strong enough to prove or show that it does still doesn't stop the god principle existing because at the end of the day, God could have created that, as I said about the, the tree in the Garden of Eden. He could have created it at that point. In other words, had you been a scientist with your best machinery, had you been around in that Garden of Eden, and you would have dug into the earth, you would have said, hang on a second, how old you say this earlier? That was about six days old. Well, you took a wrap. There's rocks here and a mountain, which prove it's millions of years old. Well, that's the way God made it. And once you say that, you can have any age you want inherent in the blueprint. There, but it was created at that point. Why will God create at that point? So I'll, I'll quote something you said back to me earlier, which was that God would not write it in the scripture unless it was that way. Uh, because why Why would God, if, if it was actually seven stages, why would God write it as seven days to, to confuse you? Why is he trying to fool you with the age of the earth then? Why wouldn't no, he's he... No, he's not. I claim to you that he's not. Okay, but so, so Mike, Mike... I'm saying to you that you look at that and you think this is billions of years old. Well, let me put you right, it isn't. I just made it as a complete product. But why would he make it with evidence that it was much older? Because the point I'm making is that... It's if... not... The evidence is overturned by him saying to you, I've created a mountain. Don't be fooled and think this mountain's been here a long time. I'm telling you so you should know. Okay, but I'm coming clean with. But it's not. We're not talking low-level empiricism here. We're not saying I look out at the sky and I don't believe that all of that could have come in six thousand years. If we talk about radiation half lives, there is a very specific way in which we can calculate the length that things have been around by how many half lives of radiation they have, and we get this fundamental structure from directly observable instances. Only if that started from dot and allowed to decay. But if it started at a particular... I, I, I agree entirely. I'm saying if, if it started at a certain point throughout the half-life decay period, then it could have been created there. It's like the, it's like the last Thursday hypothesis, which is a sort of fairly sarcastic philosophical hypothesis that says well what if the the whole world was created last thursday and all of your memories were implanted on thursday can you prove that that's not right you objectively can't and it this goes back to the burden of proof in that if i if i make the claim that the world came into existence last thursday and all your memories are synthetic the torah is synthetic everything else is synthetic 
you can't disprove that claim. Well, I'm saying the exact same thing is true here. You're right that if God created the world 6,000 years ago, but for some weird reason made it that the half-lives were already a few billion wow. years into their half-lives. Why half would that be weird? Because why would God do it? Why would God create the universe already so far along the half-life Because period? he wants a complete house. He doesn't want you to start from the adopt and wait, sit there for 30 billion years waiting around for man to appear. He wants things to start right. Except, so except are you... In the he case doesn't even create a child and allow him to grow up. Okay, I agree in the case of... It's at least a theory as good as any the scientific one, and it has the stat of... It has the stat of the so I mean, it's not. But in, in, in the case of the tree, I agree that God creating a tree from nothing and God creating a fruit-bearing tree from nothing are equally possible or equally impossible. So why does half-life radiation have some sort of magic to you? That... I don't think it does. And I'm not saying that it's not theoretically possible. I'm asking that... Seen as you claim the world is 6,000 years old, and there is so much of a wealth of information that proves otherwise, why does that information exist unless God is trying to deceive us in some way? Now, at that entirely arbitrary point in the conversation, we are going to end this part of the episode here. But as you might have noticed, this is a two-part episode, so this conversation will be picked up in the very next episode, which will hopefully be out in the next week or so. For now, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of A Rabbi and a Philosopher Walk Into a Podcast, and we hope you come back for the next one. <laughs>